welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm Annie Galvin, an editor and producer at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that is free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. And I'm Natalie Kirby, Digital Content Associate at Data and Society. Data and Society is a research institute that studies the social implications of data-centric technologies and automation. You can learn about our work at datasociety.net. This is the third season of our podcast, so if you're listening for the first time, I invite you to subscribe to Public Books 101 in your podcast feed and listen back to season one, which was about the internet, and season two, which was about the novel in the 21st century. This season, we're excited to partner with Data and Society to explore the past, present, and future of human life being quantified as data. Natalie will be your host for this season, so I'll pass the mic over to her. Thanks so much for listening. In this season, Becoming Data, my guests and I are considering a few main guiding questions. How long has human life been quantified as data, and in what contexts? What are some major implications of humans being quantified or measured as data? How are people pushing back against the datification of human life, work, health, and citizenship, among other things. If you have thoughts about this episode, you can tweet at us at Data Society or at Public Books. You can follow both organizations on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work that we do. Today, my guests are Mimi Onuoha and Lam Toivo. We'll be discussing the ways that people collect data, how people show up in data, and the inequalities and harms that can result from these practices. Both Mimi and Lam take a creative approach to thinking about data. They both played the role of collector and collected. All right, let's get into today's conversation with Mimi and Lam. All right, so thank you so much, both of you, for being here today. I'm really excited for this conversation. So if you could say your name and tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you do, that would be great. So Mimi, why don't we start with you? Sure. My name is Mimi Anoha. I am a media artist and I make work about what it means for the world to take the form of data. And I do that through a lot of different formats. But lately I've been gravitating more towards um, video, audio, installation, and I still do um, prints as well. Great. And how about you, Lam? Um, my name is Lam Toivo. I use data to investigate the systems that govern our lives. And uh, that can take shape in investigative journalism, but also in data visualizations or um, more whimsical essays around the nature of um, humanity as seen through the digital footprints that people leave behind. Great. So yeah, I think you both have very like, creative interventions into data. And so I'm very curious to ask you the question, what is data? Because I think, you know, kind of depending on a person's practice, they might approach that, um, the definition of data differently. So Lam, why don't you start first? Okay. So I usually um, try to use a friend's definition of data, because I think it really blew my mind when she first brought it to me. And it's the idea that data is an interview done by someone else on a massive scale. Right. If you think of the Census Bureau's um, decennial census 
um, you'll see 10 or so questions on uh, on this one form that's getting passed around to thousands if not millions of people right and so in some to some degree someone wrote down those questions and devised an interview that's going to be done with millions of people great and how about for you Mimi what is data yeah well I have a long history of working as an educator too and so I've worked in a lot of community spaces but also in a lot of universities And this is a thing, this having to have a definition of data is something that comes up in a lot of these spaces. Um, And so where I began from was this definition that I used to really like from Mitchell Whitelaw, who's an Australian academic, who says that data are measurements extracted from the flux of the real. And that was where I sort of began years ago. That's what I used to say. And I like that because there's a kind of um, kind of poetry to it. And also this use of the word extracted, I think, is, is, is interesting and sometimes does some interesting work within there. But I've kind of shifted to a, an easier and even more simplistic, perhaps, definition, which is just that data are the things that a group measures and cares about. And I like that because of these two different sides that it has, where... First, this idea of things that can be measured, this need to to really forefront the quantification that is necessary for thinking about data. But then balancing that too with the things that a group cares about. So this gets at some of those questions of intention, this idea that it's not just that this thing comes comes out of anywhere. It's not, this isn't oil, it's not data. Data is just this this existing resource. But know that there is some kind of process or act that has to get something into this form. And so often that is some group being incentivized in some way to do that. Yeah, I think what comes out in both of your definitions is how much you think about like the people creating data sets or the questions that people are trying to answer with data sets. Um, And so my next question is kind of more about your own personal interaction with data. I think both of you have very kind of personal origin stories about how you became interested in this subject. So I'd love to hear about those. Um, Mimi, can you tell us about your catcalling project and when did it start and who was it for? Right. Okay. So this um, was this sort of small project. I often call it an intervention rather than uh, traditional artwork. Um, And it would have been in, I want to say, I want to say 2013. Honestly, what is time? Everything blends together, but (laughs) I think it was 2013. And that was, that was really interesting because that was a project that was done for me very specifically. And that's kind of why I say this, this is an intervention. I really didn't do this with a Mm. sense of anyone else in mind. And what was happening was that this was, um, it was a summer when I was just getting catcalled a lot and I wanted some kind of response to have when I was being catcalled. Because the response that I felt like I was having just was not sufficient and that I was feeling kind of feeling kind of weird and wishing I could say something back, but then I did, just didn't at that time. Um, and so it became this moment where I thought, okay, I can use this distancing effect of a lot of, of technology. I can use this effect of creating distance and I can kind of use that to my own advantage. So I did this thing where I, anytime somebody would catcall me for that summer, I would give them this little piece of paper and it had my phone number on it, except that it wasn't actually my phone number. (laughs) It was this number that I had hooked up to a server and then I had pre-programmed these different strings of messages um, that would be sent to people when they texted the phone number. You could call, no one would answer, but you could always text and then you would receive one of these answers. And so I did that over the course of the summer. And 
as I said, the whole point of this was to really change the way that I felt, was to be able to have a kind of response if someone cat called me that I didn't just think about it. I was like, here, take this phone number. And then I could watch uh, this this strange interaction play out between the things that I had programmed and whatever the strangers were saying. And I should say, this was this was early, this was years ago, so it was before bots was were a thing. So it was a different moment. But uh, what was interesting about that, about that project and also part of the reason why I only call it an intervention is that it didn't really resolve because I just sort of realized something else that I, that really just captivated me from it, which was at the end of the summer, what I had was this kind of data set of all of my cat callers' phone numbers. And it was one that they had kind of provided just by virtue of texting me, but it was something, this artifact that I had just had not meant to create. And then what happened was that as I would tell people about this project, people would really focus on that artifact. And that became the thing that was most interesting, was the data. This data of these this cat-collar cat database, you know, people would call it. Um, and I ended up not doing anything with those phone numbers, even though loads of people were like, oh my gosh, you should text them this or spam them, put them on this, whatever. I ended up not doing anything because I was just so, like, so really taken with the fact that I hadn't meant to create this thing, but it had emerged through this process. But also that by having the thing, it sort of erased the whole story of collection that brought it into being. And mm. just looking at those phone numbers, there was no way that you could see this whole thought process I had had ahead of time. And the feeling of like dread that I just hated having to just hand somebody a phone number and not say anything, which is very strange. And it because that entire that entire part of it felt like it was missing just by looking at the artifact. Mm. And that for me was what made me start to think, okay, there's something that happens in this act of data collection. There's a relationship that is kind of built here, and it is sort of erased by just having the data set. And if you only get the data set, you don't have to think about any of this. But to not have that is to miss something. Yeah, that's super interesting to think about how when something becomes a data set, a lot of the context kind of falls away. I'm curious, what were some of the messages that you had pre-programmed that were sent to the catcallers? Oh my gosh, they were not good. <laughs> they really weren't. I still remember telling my roommates the messages and they were like, oh, girl, what's wrong with you? So they were just things, some of them were really um, just overdramatic. Like they were like, I wish you knew how terrible your actions make me feel, mm -hmm. which was so dumb. <laughs> That's the one that I remember the most clearly. Right. I wonder like, because you like had this database, right? Whereas like everyone looking at this data was like, okay, this is a group of cat callers. I wonder after receiving that text message, how that person started to identify themselves. Were they like, oh, I'm a cat caller, you know? Well, they never, I mean, no one told them. They never right. knew. And I told you, I didn't do anything with it. But I will say the majority of messages that I got back were just like people kind of cursing me out or being like, what the, you know, false promises. Why'd you give me your number? Mm. And then you said, you know, it's, it's it seems wrong. But I do remember getting um, a message or two from someone who was like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you feel that way. Yeah, that's super but interesting. But who knows? All right, so Lam, you have this project that's called the Quantified Breakup Project. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I think interestingly enough, I came to a similar conclusion to Mimi, but kind of the other way around. In 2013, around the same time as Mimi, <laughs> um, <laughs> I found out that um, the average office worker leaves behind a digital footprint of five gigabytes worth of data. And I was fascinated by that. And like, I think one of the things that I was interested in was the idea that this data exists, but how much can we actually 
understand humanity through these digital footprints. And so in 2013, I was also going through probably one of the worst breakups in my life <laughs> at that point in time. And um, understanding that there's so much data around uh, about me out there, I realized that I wanted to see whether I could use this data to plot my emotional recovery over time. Um, sometimes when you're in that moment, it's really, really difficult to pull yourself out. So I was like, how about I look into the data points as a way to heal myself, as a way to really cut through it and to understand both with kindness that I will feel like garbage for a while, but that there is a path that I can plot by looking at the data over time. And so I started out with like very simple things that were actually almost manual data collection, like, oh, when did I go to sleep, right? But then I started looking into things like what data can I get from my Facebook archive or what information can I find through my bank accounts? Like I did a whole chart that was called three months of um, um, retail therapy, looking into how I was recovering as seen through the stupid purchases I made um, that were all collected through my uh, bank account. And I think in many ways for me, it became a way of like being curious. So there are these footprints all over the internet of my behavior what can i actually meaningfully say about them and what does it not measure what are the missing data sets here what are the missing components here that would really be necessary for me to responsibly interpret this data and so I, I basically started understanding the vastness of the data troves out there and the, the ways in which we could totally misinterpret this information if we don't have the context. If I didn't have the context of me going through a breakup, what would I say about the data of me buying a stupidly expensive fountain pen? You know, like mm -hmm. to me, it became a very interesting exercise in both looking at the the amount of data that's, uh, the amount of data that exists about me but then also understanding the nature of it and that's where i think similarly to uh, mimi i just became very curious about what is it that people optimize for when they start collecting this data what is it that they actually want to do with this data and how does that skewed way of looking at humanity limit our view of it yeah, what I love about both of your stories is because both of you were the collectors, you were able to like see when the data didn't line up with your actual experience, right? And like, it became very clear to you what was missing because you're like, I live this and it's not showing up. Whereas like, I think in other data sets, it's perhaps maybe not always as obvious because we're not the, uh, it's not, the data we're collecting isn't about our personal lives or, or experience. Um, and so again, I think a really important motif in both of your work is, is not just focusing on the data that's collected on humans, but the humans who are doing the collecting, right? So, and I think Lam, you brought up this missing data sets that I think we're going to get to later in our conversation. But first, I want to talk about just how people show up in data. So Lam, you have this project about um, where you create quantified selfies. Um, and I'm curious to hear about the various kinds of data that we leave behind on the internet um, and how you've come to see how they represent people. So could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So there's two, I mean, like if you want to broadly look into the categories of data that exist are 
there's one data set that kind of collects things that you do on the internet without even thinking about it much, right? That could be as simple as you liked a photo and that now is a data point somewhere in a large data set about you. And then over time, suddenly all of these companies from like the bank that is looking at the your expenditures to the ways in which uh, cookies are collecting your behavior on your searching online. All of this is information that becomes the data set um, around things you did when you thought no one was watching to some degree. Right. And then there's the opposite of that, which I think is like this interesting performative space on the Internet where a lot of people are like um, making announcements about who they think they are. Right. Who they want to be. And I think that's a different kind of data set. That's the Instagram post, the Facebook mm -hmm. updates, sta uh, status update. Right. And so I think that's a really interesting quest to really understand how do people show up? Well, there's like information that is being collected to build a longitudinal behavioral pattern of you, right? And that is oftentimes optimized to then um, sell you things with ads. And then there's the stuff that you put out there about who you think you are and who you want others to think you are. And to me, that's also a fascinating understanding of like, yourself in the digital age when you exist in semi-private and semi-public spaces at the same time. Yeah, I think that's actually a really important point to emphasize because I think so much of so many conversations around data are about like the data that these huge companies and social media companies are collecting on us. But you're right, like we're also creating data about ourselves and the way that we want to be read by others. Um, and so, I, you know, oh, go ahead, Mimi. Oh, sorry, Natalie. I just was going to jump jump on top of what Lam was saying. Something I'm always saying is how data collection is actually a relationship, but it's a relationship that can be difficult to see. And I think both of us know what it's like to do these projects where we are both the subject and the object of the data collection, mm. where we are the ones who are collecting, but the ones who are collected. But in fact, that relationship for many more people is just more about being the ones who are collected as opposed to the ones who are able to do collecting. And then it does seem like these these questions, some of the questions that you're getting at do arise from this this looking at, okay, well, who whoever who's the collected versus the the collecting in this particular moment or this context? Because if there's a, a difference between those and all of a sudden there are all these other questions that you can ask. And so just throwing that throwing that little thing onto the table too. Were you mentioning, I think, the idea of like being both object of the collection and creator of that data in a both semi-conscious way, right? Like, I think that's that's like a really interesting emotional space that I'm I'm curious about, right? Like the idea of like, how much do we know that when we like something, it means something? There's so many unspoken emotional tolls that happen on social media nowadays. It's like from the, from the FOMO that you get all the way to like the ways in which exes are not supposed to behave a certain way online. Like what mm. is like the code of conduct that comes with that? Is an ex supposed to like a photo of yours? That's a really interesting question. Mm. Can you chalk it up to them being so, sort of socially inept and sort of not that great with technology? To what degree is this an offense or not? It's it's a really interesting thing around the idea of like the data that we produce as an as 
some sort of indicator of what we think or feel, right? Because I think that's what everyone sees it as now. And so when it comes to this like idea of col being collected about, right? Like a lot of it is like this ominous machine that kind of just follows you around on the internet. And then the other part is like, what that social currency of a like of a data point that you produce is now there's like all these terms that have come up from the social context of social media think about orbiting i think the new york times wrote a big article about it i don't i i wouldn't pertain to say that the new york times discovered the term but like the idea of orbiting is that someone keeps showing up in like you <laughs> Yes, social feeds. Um, they they used to date you. They no longer want to have anything to do with you. But somehow you can see their little icon pop up as they watch your stories on Instagram or on Snapchat, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> they, you, they suddenly like something that you did or like a post that you like tagged in in a different someone else's Instagram account. And like there's some interesting social currency that a data point now is. And I don't think we have a common playbook for how we evaluate that, right? We have a lot of conversations about the privacy implications of those people who are being monitored by others but i don't know whether we've had a lot of conversations around the idea of like how that's changed social dynamics and i'm fascinated by that i have no answers i have a lot of sadness and happiness with it but also <laughs> i'd love to hear what you have to say i i agree with you i think that there is um this additional layer that I think about, which what you're saying makes me think about, which is actually something my partner really put me onto because my partner was doing a lot of work around disinformation and misinformation. Mm. And it was just this thing of how, you know, in real life, you have when you're having a conversation with someone, you know, there there's what you say verbally and then there's everything that's nonverbal. And there's so much information in the nonverbal, just as there's information in the verbal. And there's this like information in the combination of the two. And my partner would talk about people sharing things on social media and how that is not just an act that is um, like this explicit, what is it that you're sharing? It's not just about the content. It's also about how you want to be perceived, what it means to be somebody who shares this particular thing. Mm -hmm. Just understanding that there are more, the, the different layers to this, where it's not just about the explicit and never, it's the most human thing to not just be about that. Yeah. And I think what you were saying about like when we post something we adhere to it and we say something about ourselves. I think one of the things that's also been interesting within the larger context of that is it is a demarcation. If I post something I'm reading, it is me drawing a line between what political camp I'm in and what political camp I'm not in. Even if I post it with zero comments, right? Like our political news consumption is now, a, it's a very posturing community building act right like when i share an article let's say even from let's say the guardian or like buzzfeed news where i work it does not even matter whether this article solicited complicated feelings whether i was looking at it in an exploratory uh, exploratory manner the fact that i'm posting it in a semi-public space right that then builds um sort of like a little coalition that then other people can adhere to. And so if someone likes that post, that means you're my political group. You're my little village. You are part of this group now that we are all par participating in. And I think that's actually like a lot of the polarizing filter bubbles that people have been talking about, just using the like button, the heart button on Instagram, or posting like, if I post a picture of a queer friend who is transitioning, that is a clear political statement by which I then demarcate myself from one group or another. 
right? So it's a really fascinating thing where everything, because of the nature of the performative nature of the internet, where can we even just have exploratory fluid spaces? Yeah, that kind of brings me back to something I wanted to ask you, Mimi. Um, you wrote this piece for the Walker Art Center about how the original conceptions of the internet subscribe to this universal us. Um, and you kind of make the argument that it that universal us ignores the complex histories and, and messiness that comes with being human. And I think kind of what Lam and you were both saying here is that people use social or people use social media and the internet to kind of perform an identity of themselves, right? And so I think that's already like telling us that there is no universal us online. But I'd be curious if you could talk to us a little bit more about that article that you wrote and the argument that you're trying to make there. Yeah, I am just always very interested in this question of of us and we, and who really gets seen as the we of, of a society. And I think that we is just extremely interesting because it becomes this kind of narrow proxy for highlighting and revealing a much larger kind of matrix of power. So this ability to like say we and not have to consider who's included in it or or by nature of what you're saying excluded from that grouping is can be just very revealing, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so in that article, I am talking about this moment that the world is in which is this moment of enduring coloniality, which has knitted so many different groups and types of humans together, but in ways that are not equal. And the internet was built atop that same world. And so the thing that I'm always sort of holding when I'm working in technological spaces is the degree to which that reliance on that visioning is is acknowledged. And the internet at the time of its founding was such a good moment to look at because it simultaneously held these kinds of spaces where it was like, oh, there's this chance for kind of different pockets, for different ways of maybe being to sort of peek out. But of course, with anything that's new, it's always important to know what is kept the same and what is carried over. And one thing that is that was carried over is that same like epistemological perspective where the we is very, very clear and very it's very clear who is who is held within it. Can you give us an example of an instance when someone might have referred to a group of people as that we in relation to data? Oh, definitely. Yes. Let me let me ground this a little bit. I think in that article, I talk about John Perry Barlow's um, declaration on cyberspace, which was published in 1996. Not trying to hate, but there is, you know, that's where he's like, oh, yeah, cyberspace is going to be this fantastic land. Like we are without our bodies. We are free. We can do what we want. Look at us. You can't stop us. This is it. And of course, you know, the story, anybody who is online now or most people who are online now really have a strong sense of, no, no, we we didn't leave our bodies behind. That, it all showed up. It's all here. And in fact, our experiences of this space are determined by all of these other things that we carried with us. The internet is such an interesting space because there is just so much, I'm endlessly fascinated, there's so much potential. There's so, so much potential in it. But also, even within these spaces that seem very novel, the same power structures actually are kind of carried over and reformatted to still fit, unless you're actively trying to push against those. Absolutely. So I want to move the conversation now to what's missing, because I think what's clear throughout this whole conversation so far is there's narratives that get excluded, there's data that doesn't get collected purposely or not. Um, And so there's kind of this almost like alternative Um, track that we don't always see um, because of the cultural and economic uh, context in which we 
lead our lives. So Mimi, I know you have this project on um, where you've created a library of missing data sets. So can you tell us about the project and why you created a library specifically? Yes, I'd love to. Um, so library of missing data sets, this kind of came out of this very small observation uh, for me, which was just that there would be these systems where lots of lots of data were being collected, and then there would be something that was missing, or a few things that to me were very obviously missing. And around the time when I started this project, it was, um, I want to say 2016, perhaps. And at the time, what I was thinking about was um, police brutality. It's funny because it's, you know, it was 2016, obviously, it's still relevant now in 2021. But police brutality and people who had died through police brutality, people have been killed by, by law enforcement agents. And at that time, there wasn't really a clear data set around it. And I found that so, um, so illuminating because there is just so, so much data when it comes to thinking about uh, policing and justice, the justice system, I mean, and so many other, other things kind of tied to that. And yet there was this thing and it didn't exist. There was nothing there. And I ended up just being really, really fascinated by that. And I should say, by the way, that this is no longer a missing data set. This, um, there are groups working very hard mm-hmm. who have been working hard to try to collect uh, and make sense of that. But it's uh, the, the fact that it's taken a lot of effort and from very many groups uh, to do this when, to be honest, it's something that could be very easily um, collected by law enforcement agents, mm-hmm. uh, just by the police. But the fact that it's taken that much kind of speaks to it. And so I started this whole project, which is on the one hand, a kind of art installation, and that's the library of missing data sets, and then also a kind of research project. And all of it is about all of these places where data do not live. And in it, I'm thinking about how, you know, a lot of my practice looks at absence and it looks at removal and silence. And that the e- I always think the easiest way to make sense of a system is looking at what is um, what seems to not be included within it and noting the way that these silencings are not distributed evenly. And so in this library of missing data sets, the actual installation is this filing cabinet and inside of it are all of these different data sets, things that are not collected, things that the larger public does not have access to. And there are all these different reasons for it. A lot of what I try to do in that piece is really make clear through the the organization of all of these different filing folders, which, as I, as I said, they all have the title of a, of a missing data set, but then there's nothing inside of them. So you can kind of pick it up and look, but you'll see nothing because the point is that they're missing. Um, a lot of <laughs> what I'm trying to do is get at this pattern of absence, is to not fetishize the things that are missing to say they need to be filled, but to really think, okay, well, what is the pattern behind it? Why is it that there are so reliably things that cannot be collected, that cannot be made into data, or that folks are insistently saying that they will not let be made into data? What what are these patterns and what do they speak to? Mm -hmm. And I think that becomes a kind of way to hold this this thing that I think we've been talking about a lot in this conversation, this weight, like you said, Natalie, of these different alternatives, different modes of being or living or different modes of um, whether how you're included or excluded it become that that piece becomes a way to hold a lot of those different ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, one of my follow up questions to you was going to be, are these data sets that you think should be collected? And I feel like, kind of through your explanation just now, that I almost feel like that's not quite the right question, although I'm still curious, is like, irregardless, what you're pointing out are patterns of, of things not being collected. Right. Yes. To exactly to fall. I think 
to want to collect everything. And that does happen. Sometimes this piece gets shown and that has been a reaction where folks have reached out and said, yeah, just, just great. Tell us all the things. Let's do it. Let's fill it. Let's go. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not the point. What I'm trying to do is pull us back into a kind of structural understanding, which is really, really hard to do. But really that's what I'm doing is not saying everything needs to be collected. But what I'm saying is that there are clear reasons why these things are not. And each one of them, there is something, there's, there are these patterns to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of those have to do with just that. Some things do not fit our systems of collection. You know, some things refuse quantification. They refuse met- uh, being uh, made into metrics. Or there's this imbalance between who has the incentive and who has the ability. So that's like the case where I was talking about, mm. like, police brutality and people killed by the police. The group that has the incentive to have that is the group that doesn't have easy access to, to actually ha- seeing that data set. Mm-hmm. And then I think another another reason is this this one that is a little tricky, I think, to hold sometimes, but it's just that sometimes there is just an advantage to not having a data set be present. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that's tricky is because anytime something is missing, it actually is an advantage to someone. So a really good example of this is municipal ID cards. That's one of my favorite examples to use is that there are some, you know, around 2016, this really came into a kind of public news space, but there are some counties that have municipal ID cards precisely to both protect undocumented people, but also, you know, give this kind of municipal identification for people who would want it in the city. And so some cities do this when they collect the information for these municipal ID cards, they will keep the information And then some cities, when they collect it, to collect it so they can give it to you, they don't actually keep any of the information. And so in that moment, when they're not keeping the information, they're doing that as a strategic gesture of removal, where they now know that if the federal government should try to come to them and say, give us the the database that says who took these cards. If you have that database, you could run that against some other databases and really quickly figure out who's undocumented. And in fact, that did, that was a process that almost happened here in New York. Mm-hmm. Or happened to some degree. And so there are loads of, there's some really interesting examples of different, like indigenous groups. There are things, even in my own culture, I'm an Igbo Nigerian, where you can kind of look at it this way, where something is missing because it is protected and a group kind of realizes how it can be used against them by the sort of dominant group. And so they say, no, we're going to withhold this. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And I think, I hope I'm remembering this correctly. I think in a presentation that Ruha Benjamin gave at Data and Society, she was kind of referencing the work of our data bodies and how they had, mm-hmm. um, you know, documented a lot of their like organizing strategies for pushing back against um, the extraction of their data. But they also were like, we're not going to share all of these strategies because we don't want to reveal this because then those strategies won't be effective any- anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So, Lam, I I really want to give you a chance to respond, especially because I know that as a journalist, you are someone that is often, you know, doing investigations to create those missing data sets, right? Especially when it comes to like inequalities in social systems. So I'd love to hear what you have to say. I mean, I think I would like to compliment some of the things that um, Mimi said. I think on, in addition to certain things just not being measured, right, like is that uh, some of society's most vulnerable people have probably the most punitive data being um, collected around them, right? Like there's the idea of an eviction, for example. I've been doing a lot of reporting around eviction records and like understanding that that data is being used in punitive measures on some of society's most vulnerable 
people, like communities, is something that's really problematic. And there's so much more data about human beings who have been evicted in that realm um, that is not counterbalanced by things like, I don't know, we don't measure how often, how many jobs this one woman may have been like um, applying for, right? Like all of these other things that may counter that is not being collected. Let, let's take a very simple story of a single mom um, who is a woman of color, oftentimes black. This is the general demographic of what you see a lot in eviction court, right? Like let, let's do a simple data profile of her. I bet you I can find a lot more data sets that document something bad that she did than I could find data sets around the efforts she has made to take care of her children, to take care of rent, to take care of her car bills, of her insurance bills, and so on. There's all of this other countering like human measures that she must have taken. And I've talked to many women like that in my job to rectify her own situation and to save herself and her children. Not only do we miss certain data uh, sets, the way in which it is um, being collected oftentimes as data is very lopsided and places a much larger and disproportionate weight on quote unquote negative data sets, right? Any brush with like law enforcement, that's a data point. Any brush with like child services, that's a data point. Any application for like um, unemployment benefits, that's a data point. Any eviction, that's a data point. But what about all of these other ways in which this person has tended to the health of their family and the health of their community? We don't see that. And that to me is always something I try to counteract. I cannot prove to you that of the 400 people who are being evicted by this one corporate landlord, all of them are doing well. But I can show you the actual like ongoings of this one apartment block and like kind of counter that missing data by collecting data around what efforts have been put into the community to um, help each other out. What kinds of costs have these women incurred by fixing things that their landlord wouldn't fix, right? Like these are all different types of hopefully balancing data sets that could then also explain some of the larger trends and, and anomalies that we can see in the negative data sets that, are, uh, that exist about them. One of the things that I find particularly troublesome is that not only do we have missing data sets and data sets that shouldn't exist, sometimes we have downright dirty data sets. And like what I mean by that is like it comes down to there's a great um, paper that Rashida Richardson did about um, police practices. And one of the ways in which she like looks into data and how flawed it is is that police records and criminal like criminal records actually have bias baked into them and then suddenly by looking at them through statistics we have this idea oh this is a clean data set it is completely unbiased there's nothing in there but in the meantime we have now seen enough occurrences in the media around the country to understand that there is bias in who gets policed more than who doesn't, right? And so understanding that there is not just missing data, but that the data itself, the idea that something that was collected with technology um, is infallible, that to me is just as problematic as like the missing data sets. All of this is to say, I think this goes at a concept that Meredith Broussard kind of beautifully coined as techno-chauvinism. It's the idea that just because it's data and it uses scientific 
processes doesn't mean that it's infallible. And techno-chauvinism is this like belief that it is science, it is data, it is technology. Oh, that means that it is infallible. That means that I have to just blindly believe in that. I wish people were just going to think about this more intently because at some point someone came there who did not look like us, probably, who did not li lead the lives that Mimi and I did and like decided in a stroke of like a line of code what was supposed to be like what is considered moral and not what is considered a risk or not or what is considered um uh, someone who needs to be persecuted or not based on shitty data so i think this brings me to the next question that i'd i'd like to ask um and so mimi you've kind of coined this term algorithmic violence and i think it kind of gets to a lot of what lama is talking about when she's talking about social systems and government systems that end up making decisions about people's lives, right? And that turns into this very individual experience. So could you define algorithmic violence for us and just tell us a little bit about the term and maybe give us an example of it? Sure. Yeah, I think about algorithmic violence as the kind of violence that um, a social algorithm or al automated decision-making system inflicts by stopping people from being able to meet their basic needs. And I don't even need to provide an example because Lom just did <laughs> so many fantastic ones right there, particularly in talking about eviction, talking about just the justice system in general. <laughs> um, I love also citing Meredith Broussard's kind of techno-chauvinism is such a, it, that's really kind of at the heart. And I'll say algorithmic violence, something that I think is just important about it is that is understanding this as something that lies on top of other forms of structural violence. So this is on top of racism and racial capitalism. This is on top of the same, like, like what we've inherited from colonialism. The way in which these automated decision-making systems, which are built on the data that comes from those same systems, now inflicts an additional layer of preventing people from being able uh, to do what it is that they need to do to just be able to live their lives. It is no surprise that there are so, so many of the people who have been, who really held down this field <laughs> in talking, people who, who Lam was talking about. It is no surprise that it's so many Black women who have held down this field. Folks like Safia Noble and Meredith Broussard and um, Ruha Benjamin and Simone Brown. And there's two, Latanya Sweeney. And it could, those lists, you mentioned Rashida Richardson. There, the list just goes on and on. I think it makes sense because it's folks who are at this particular intersection of seeing the ways in which lots of different lots of different structural violence can be inflicted and then different systems can fail you if you fall into those systems or fall into those cracks. I think one of the things that I talk a lot um, to my friend Tuyin about um, is the idea of like documentation as a is a colonizer's force, right? Like the idea of the ways in which something that is valued is documented. The same way in which, mm. like, for example, my my grandmother mm. and my grandfather met on a colonial plantation. They were like workers on that colonial plantation. What does this mean when their history is not documented, but the, the history of this other person is documented? Even when you look into Simone Brown, you mentioned she wrote this like incredible book, Dark Matters, um, which um, at some point she talks about what is being collected, what kind of data was being collected about black folks during the time, um, um, like very early on was their assets as, as slaves and as a property, right? They were not considered human beings. It's the same way the census did not count Native Americans in 1790, but then divided race into categories of white folks, 
um, slaves and other free folks, right? Like there is a very inherent, almost colonizer's gaze to the act of documentation. And I think when you look at different cultures and histories, think about Native American cultures that actually pass information down in an oral and verbal uh, fashion, right? There's so many non-written documentations that actually are much more a participatory way of looking at information over time. If you think of history as documented through data versus his and, and documents versus history documented through oral tradition, right? There's a very participatory communal and community-based understanding of that information versus here's a clean slate of a, um, a spreadsheet that details every single person's like function at that point in time. I don't mm. know if like one is particularly superior to the other, but in an Occidental, Westernized look at society, we oftentimes prioritize the written documentation, which includes data, right? Above any other ways of understanding and, and, and documenting history. And to me, that in itself is already like an interesting question, just because it wasn't written down, just because it wasn't written down into a spreadsheet, doesn't mean that it matters less. I'm very interested if you could like talk a little bit more about what you mean when you say participatory. What does that look like? Right. Like I think there's an um, an element of like understanding. Like if I uh, let's take a very simple thing, cooking. Right. Like this is this is goes into my heart as well. The idea of like um, the way like. My grandmother made pho is the way that my mother made pho is the way that I learned how to make pho. These are all three different ways. Like this is something that was passed down from generation to generation, but it was always participatory and it was always sort of catering to the circumstances of that moment. Understanding how to read a freaking room with like the people who are in that room and then figuring out how to understand that information in a very contextualized, in a very community-based way. Data and documentation um, is oftentimes written down in the most sterile of ways, right? Like that, that doesn't make room for like any sort of different way of, of contextualizing that. It's not necessarily like something that has served a purpose. And oftentimes one of the things that I'm interested in is the idea of data stewardship. So when it is written down, similar to what Mimi was like kind of like collecting this like in data set of like cat collars what the intention of the data set was is not what it ends up being used for maybe right the same way mm. for example the intention of like one of the things that i'm interested in in policing is the idea of like someone documented their life in a certain way and used the hashtag to mourn the death of a community member that is a very contextualized understanding of like expressing grief in a community when you t strip out the communal aspect of that this little hashtag and this is something that the nypd does becomes a way for police officers to listen in on potential gang members because the person who died may have been affiliated with a gang data stewardship suddenly you take something that is a right that is a ritual that is a community building aspect you document it in like a very sterile format and put it into like a facebook archive or whatever it is Police officer picks it up and puts that kid into a gang database. What does this say about the fallibility of data stewardship right there? Hmm. <laughs> I think, Lam. Yes. I 
just am vibing off of what you're saying. I'm so glad you are. Hard. Yes, <laughs> you know I am. And I think just one thing that I like to point to, just to your your point about, I think you just said it so beautifully. This kind of, I think this is a form of violence. This sense, this view that says only that which is written, only that which is documented, is valued. That that is kind of the central. This it eliminates so much. And there's something in just what you were talking about about more oral um, kind of cultures. You were talking about a lot of indigenous groups. And I know for me, as I said, I'm an, I'm an Igbo person. I'm from the Igbo group, which is in um, Nigeria. And a lot of what, you know, there's so much, This it's a culture like proverbs really matter a lot. The spoken has a very, has a huge significance. And something that is very interesting about things that are passed down by being spoken is that the person knowing something is never removed from what is known. So, that's never this thing we talk about where there's the artifact in data and then the context it is produced in. With something that is spoken, the context and the thing that is produced, the thing that is said, they're always tied together. You have to, you know, you're with the person and then they say it. And so there's no confusion about that. There's no separation. And I just, I agree with Lam. It's not a question of what is better. It's a question of what does it mean that this this focus on, on the documentation, on the artifact, is overrepresented and is now made to be a value that the whole world in the same coloniality sense is now pulled into. And so that that creates these rifts. And I think there there is a violence to that that Lam is describing really nicely. Hmm. I like that you both pushed us out of this binary of participatory versus written or documented. Um, because I think that's where conversations often stray. Um, and it instead focuses on how, you know, documentation in and of itself can can strip data of its context, um, you know, remove it further from the people it's about and, and how that can be a violence in and of itself. So in this series, we've been trying to end each episode by looking to the future. And two themes that have run throughout this conversation, for me at least, are morality and power. Right, So a lot of the data collection practices that we've talked about today are not illegal, and thus conversations about the harms that they perpetuate often fall into questions of morality. So I'd love for each of you to tell me how you think about morality and power in the context of data. And I'm hoping this will provide us with some frameworks for negotiating our future relationship to data. So Lam, why don't you start? I think... It is not necessarily the data itself. It is what we end up wanting to do with it and how we evaluate what that goal is. To some degree, I think the overall argument is that the act of data collection, the tools that we use to do it with, they are neutral, right? There's nothing moral about writing a line of code that then picks up a piece of information and puts it in a spreadsheet. What do you do with this and how do you understand the limitations of this? And honestly, if you really want to use data, how do you what do you, what are you optimizing for? What is what to you constitutes the health of a society versus what makes you the most money, Facebook? Right? Like it's the it's it's this really interesting question of having just gone with let's let's collect all the data that we can and just kind of optimize it for like capitalistic gains to a point now where we have to really consider why what are we optimizing for and how do we even measure that if we want to use data right if i want to use data to allocate school lunches to neighborhoods that need it more 
that is not an amoral choice, right? Like that is hopefully something that we can do with the information that we gather, right? Like through the census. To me, it's always sort of an index of like um, metrics that I like to use to get to a point where hopefully society is healthier. If that is something that we want to optimize for, I am all for like finding different ways of using data in in ways that also make room for errors and us changing our course of action. But I think we don't even ask ourselves the questions, what is it for? What is our optimal outcome? How do we nurture with data versus punish with data? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you use the word optimize also, because I feel like that almost is a bit of a, a techie word right? But you're like trying to instead imbue these different questions into like what it means to optimize. Mimi, how about for you? How do you think about morality and power in data systems? Hmm. Well, I think that there are some baseline moral questions. There are some questions that have a normative answer, I suppose, um, or are normatively constructed. So do we think that people shouldn't die of hunger? Do we think that we shouldn't, um, people shouldn't face violence for things they cannot control? Things like that. that. That's a moral question to which I would say, yes, yes, very much so. You know, do we, there are there are a few of, there. these are some big questions that exist and there is a moral question there, which is the, basically, do we, do we believe that people should be able to live these lives that are full? Now, there's a lot more to just really oversimplify. I tend to think that when it comes to, to what gets in the way of this, that is all a question of power. That's what that is. Really, a lot of the things that many of us in this space are investigating are really questions of power. And so something I do think I see a lot is that those get confused so that people will say, um, I'm trying to say this in like a, a way that's diplomatic, but people will... <laughs> These get confused. People will take something that really is about power and they will reframe it to be about morality. And in doing that, they allow themselves a kind of choice <laughs> or eliminate a kind of responsibility. So, uh, you know, a company like um, Uber can talk about wanting to make things morally better for the people who drive for the for the organization, but doesn't have to think about making them employees or paying a minimum wage, you know, doesn't have to think about some of these other things in which they would lose something. And so I guess that's that's why the thing about power is that power, for, for a group to gain power, often another group has to give up a little bit of something. And no, people don't want to give things up. Morality, I think, often becomes more comfortable people for people to use that framing because it doesn't necessarily involve giving something up and instead it frames someone who has power as um as very good <laughs> whatever that means it frames them in this positive light as opposed to being like okay there's something that needs to be taken away so for me i tend to think about things with the lens with a sort of power based analysis that's often how i approach this this the kind of work that i do but that's not to say that I don't think that there are any moral questions here at all. It's just that the moral questions are at a far lower level. Yeah, I think you hit a really key point there in the way that we kind of grapple with power amongst each other and organizations, wherever it may be, corporations, is like someone has to give up power in order for other people to gain power and to step into that. And I think I think that's a really nice place 
to leave off. Or to take, I should say. Let me just get it right. I mean, that's why people say you got to give it up or it's got to be taken. Right. It's better to give it up, but... (laughs) We would hope they give it up, but... (laughs) And that's our show. A huge thank you to Mimi Onuoha and Lamsoy Bo for sharing their thoughts about data and social life. You can find links to their work in the show notes to this episode. Please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter, at Data Society or at Public Books. If you have thoughts about this podcast, feel free to share them on Twitter and tag us. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. Next time on Becoming Data, I talked with Shaka McLaughlin, a Data and Society Fellow whose work focuses on the intersection of Black study, queer theory, media, and art, and Chris Ramsarup, an activist and co-founder of Eustacia for Migrant Workers. Together, we discuss how data has, both now and historically, been used to categorize and exploit workers. So I hope you'll join us for episode two about data and labor. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin with editorial input from Kelly Dean McKinney and Mona Sloan. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton and our logo was designed by Yuchi Liu. Special thanks to Data and Society Director of Research Sarita Amrute and Director of Creative Strategy Sam Hines and to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you next time. Thank you.